If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I would like to encourage you to join me in Acts chapter 12. We have been, over the last several weeks, in a series of study through the book of Acts, and have been highlighting instances where the church was dealing with persecution, and it comes in all shapes and sizes. Here in Acts chapter 12, we are going to enter into a moment in time where the government of the day extends its arm of tyranny over the church, and it pleases the established religion as well. And what we're going to derive from it is this. Even when adverse conditions exist, and adverse conditions always exist, even when the message of the gospel is countercultural and the message of the gospel is always and ever countercultural, even when it seems like the situation or the circumstances are less than ideal, the gospel is unbeatable. And we should learn to develop a hunger for the extraordinary life of a Christian that we see in the book of Acts. Let me begin by reading what one author said. My life is so short, and my meeting with the Lord face to face is so imminent and so real, and my desires to make a 100% return on God's investment of grace in my life are so strong that I am just not interested in any kind of fellowship that does not help people explode with more love, more compassion, more joy, more holiness, more zeal for God, and more boldness in witness more power in ministry, more vision for missions. And I do not believe, he wrote, this disenchantment of mine with self-contained, unfruitful, ineffective fellowship is a personal quirk. I think it's an echo in my heart. And yours, he said, of the explosive fellowship we hear about in the book of Acts. That's why we return to this book to study and to see what Jesus Christ expected and instituted in the church in its earliest days. And what we'll read is in the context of mounting persecution. Look with me in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, the verses are available here on the screen so that you can know this is God's Word. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending that after Easter... To bring him forth to the people. Peter therefore was kept in prison. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church of God for him. Explosive growth was just part of the life of the early church. Persecution was just woven into the fabric of the life of the early church. And where we might think those are two opposites or two extremes or two things that cannot exist together, what we learn, in fact, from studying the book of Acts is that is the case. Persecution and hardship and explosive growth live together. Back in Acts chapter 1, 
Jesus reiterates what we would call the Great Commission, where he communicates to the apostles to get the gospel message to all the world. We then see the 11 apostles and about 109 believers gather back in the upper room and they are praying and the Holy Spirit comes into that room. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the message of Pentecost and the Bible tells us that 3,000 were saved and baptized and added to the church. That is undeniable, explosive growth. It is as we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 They, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. This is the atmosphere of the early church, praising God and having favor with all people. And listen to this from Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Can you fathom The extraordinary move of God that is happening in Jerusalem. 3,000 are saved and baptized and added to the church. Before we even get out of Acts chapter 2, we realize that people are daily being saved and added to the fellowship. To our minds, that would be an extraordinary move of God. To the early church, this was ordinary, literally everyday behavior. People were being saved. In Acts 4, 31, Peter and John have been arrested for preaching. They've been released. They go into one of the fellowship groups that was existing there in the city of Jerusalem. They pray for more boldness and more power. And this is what we read in Acts 4, 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. I'm just walking through the book of Acts to try to set the tone for what we're going to study. The mandate to get the gospel to the whole world is unknown. The Pentecost breakout of the gospel is powerful. Every day people are being saved. Peter and John are imprisoned. After release from prison, they go to a prayer meeting. God responds to the prayer and the word of God goes forth with greater boldness. If we were to jump ahead in the book of Acts from where we currently are into the next chapter, we'll see in Acts chapter 13 that Saul and Barnabas are set apart to do the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's another form of explosive growth. We're meeting a missionary here in Saul in Acts 13 that is going to revolutionize gospel incorporated as the great commission is carried out throughout the world. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison for preaching. It's a dirty, life-threatening situation. They turn this dirty, life-threatening situation into a praise service. (laughs) An earthquake shakes the prison, and even there in a prison cell, the depiction of hardship, the depiction of adversity, a revival breaks out and somebody is saved. I mean to communicate to you that explosive Growth was ordinary activity for the believer in the early church. The reason that it is extraordinary activity for us is not because we lack the circumstances of adversity and hardship that existed for this group of believers, but rather because our response to it is vastly different. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 1, we read just a moment ago, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. A great big bully was on the move. And God's people were the target. Does anybody in here like bullies? No, nobody likes a good bully. 
The only people that would raise their hand are people who would they themselves be bullies. Nobody likes a bully. Herod the king is bullying the church. This is a group of largely impoverished people who are gathering on Solomon's porch, loosely associated there in their large form, moving out into the city of Jerusalem where they are meeting within homes. People are being discipled and they are growing and Herod senses an opportunity to move. And for us to fully grasp what is being taught to us in scripture, we need to understand the people who are on the page so that we don't just read through the Bible and miss out on what is being communicated. I want you to grasp this as a reality. Evil, true evil was on the throne. Herod the Great, the Bible tells us, Herod the Great, and to be quite honest with you, there was nothing great about Herod. That's like humor. That's, see what I... Let's see what I did there, Herod the Great, but there was nothing great about Herod, and you're supposed to go, that guy's a writer. <laughs> All right. Just remember, like at minute 32 of this message, you had a chance to be nice to me. You had a chance. You may remember the wise men went to Herod the Great, who reigned for 40 years, and they were looking for one who was born king of the Jews. And Herod the Great said to them, oh, listen, I also am interested in this king of the Jews that is born. Whenever you find him, do come back and tell me where he is, that I also may worship him. Yeah, right. The wise men are supernaturally warned, and they go home a different direction. And Herod the Great has a problem. He cannot discover the secret where this king of the Jews was born. And so what he does is he sends soldiers to Bethlehem with orders to slaughter every Jewish boy under the age of two years. Now just pause for a second because this is merely a Bible story, but this is historical fact. Herod the Great was on the throne and there was a season in time where satanically empowered, he sends soldiers to Bethlehem and babies to and under are slaughtered. Can you fathom the bloodshed? That would be front page news. That would dominate the headlines. You can hear, according to the scripture, it's even prophesied, the tears and the screams of anguish and horror coming out of Bethlehem. Listen, that has adversity from the local government. Herod was married 10 times. This is not a good person. He tried 10 times. Not all of his marriages went well. I'm not sure all of them were his fault, but probably eight or nine of them were. Not all of his marriages ended well either. A lot of them ended with things like decapitation and bloodshed. Now you might imagine that a guy named Herod the Great who'd been married 10 times has certainly figured some things out. I bet he had great kids. You'd be wrong. His kids were about worse than him. He had one son who was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was an immoral man. Herod Antipas was a drunk. Herod Antipas is the guy who will behead John the Baptist. Herod Antipas is the one whom Jesus Christ stood before when he was on trial before being sent back to Pilate, and Herod, personally to his face, mocks Jesus Christ. One of his other sons, Herod Agrippa I, is the one here in Acts chapter 12 who will murder James and imprison Peter. 
What I want to communicate to you is this family will go down in history as opposers of everything that Christianity stood for. And it will communicate to us this reality. They were no doubt a tool of the devil to work against the cause of Christ. And though Herod Agrippa I and Herod Antipas and Herod the Great are no longer here on earth, the fact is their spirit lives on because the spirit of this air and this culture and this cosmos in which we live still works against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will never go away. And what I want to say to you is this. We see in Acts chapter 12 and all through this book, mingled together the wickedness of sin and the evilness of tyranny and the sovereignty of God, who allows Herod to operate, as one author said, on a leash. He allows him to operate on a leash. We would, he went on to write, be greatly in error if we thought that somehow God could not prevent Herod. When we read in Acts chapter 12 that James was murdered and that Peter is imprisoned, we would be errant in our theology to say that God was powerless to stop it. And so we must discern that that means God is allowing it. And that adversity and hardship and the sovereign plan of God truly can work together. Psalms 2 establishes this reality for us. Why do the heathen rage, David asks. And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Let the kings and the rulers take counsel against the cause of Christ and against God himself. God is still in control. Evil is enthroned, but God is controlled. And by the time we get to verse 2, we begin to read of murder and imprisonment. I mean, it's simple in verse 2. There's not a whole lot of exposition necessitated. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now again, because we don't really grasp the people on the page, we read things like that and largely we're untouched by it. Largely we are unmoved by what we just read. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. But take yourself back to the church of Jerusalem and be a part of that church. And realize that Herod, the king, has just taken one of the pillars of the church at Jerusalem and executed him with the sword, and this is your everyday existence. Just reading that from Luke, that one sentence obituary from Luke, would be enough to bring up tears and grief. Certainly, I know of one individual who would have been full of tears and grief. It would have been John. All through the gospel accounts, they're always together, aren't they? James and John. James and John. James and John. Jesus himself gave them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. This is one of the guys who walked away from his fishing gear to follow after Jesus. This is one of those that was in the upper room. This was one of the guys that was there when Jesus ascended. This is one of the pillars and stalwarts of the church, and he's executed, he's murdered. And Peter is doing his now second stint in prison. Stop for a second because we have been trained to think that we have it harder than anybody else has ever had it. 
That the reason we don't see explosive growth and extraordinary acts of God is because of the adverse conditions in which we must minister. Because of how countercultural our message is. Because of how small we are, minority we are as a number, as a group of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, this destroys that narrative. He is in control, or so it would seem. He has murdered James, and he says, I see this makes the Jews happy. Of course this pleased the established religion of the day. They hated Peter talking about the resurrection. They tried to silence them from using the name of Jesus Christ. And so he takes Peter and throws him in prison. Peter was no doubt in my mind about to be headed for the same spot James was. Peter was going to be executed. Take a look around the early church. Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle-working Jesus, the one who fearlessly went into the temple and cleansed it. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who stilled the storms. Jesus is no longer walking in through the gate of Jerusalem to stand up for his disciples. He is not on the scene. Now, I'm not saying he is not in power. I'm saying he's not on the scene and they're looking around. Peter, who's in charge of the church of Jerusalem, is imprisoned. James, the brother of John, has been murdered There's no doubt in my mind the beleaguered church at Jerusalem seemed overwhelmed and helpless. It seemed as though there was absolutely nothing they could do. Herod is riding high and he is in control and the church is struggling and low. Except for two words that we read in verse 5 on which everything in this passage pivots. Peter therefore was kept in prison But prayer was made without ceasing by the church for him. Think for just a second. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, and I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see the extreme contrast. That's why we have to take the time to understand who Herod the king is. We have to remember the violence and the work against God. We have to realize who James was and we have to feel the pain and the anguish of the early church. Their leader, Peter, is now imprisoned and all they have to do is pray. And what we will learn is this. Herod is not the power on this scene, but God is. Herod thinks in this moment he can do whatever he wants to do, that he is in complete control. He thinks he's more powerful than God, but he doesn't know God. He believes that he is more powerful than the church of Jesus Christ, but he does not know the church. James did not die because God was caught off guard And Herod was able to kill James. For whatever reason known to God in his sovereign plan, it was time for James to go home. And God allowed that. One wrote this. Some would have said, what can prayer do? But the early church was not afflicted with such skepticism. Prayer can do everything. I love how one author said it. The church was just dumb enough to think that prayer would work. Now, you won't hear this from a lot of pulpits. I'm I'm kind of excited about this. You won't hear a lot of people stand in a pulpit and say to you, you need to be dumber than you are. How many of you can do that? Yep. 
every hand should be up. Now look, some of you are already killing it. You're real dumb. I mean, you are, you're doing it, man. We need you to actually back off a little. What I mean by you and I need to be dumber than we are is we think we are so savvy and we rely on our intellect and we hold on to our formalism or our tradition. We're problem solvers. And so when we sense adversity or hardship, we try to solve the problem, to work through it with our own intellect and our improvisation. And this church was just dumb enough to realize we're completely powerless The government is working against us. Established religion despises us. We only have one alternative, and our alternative is to pray to God in prayer. G. Campbell Morgan, an old preacher, said if one of our closest brothers or sisters in Christ were awaiting execution, we would pray fervently too. What I wonder is this. What does it take to push the church of Christ back to dependency on God? What does it take to finally get us to pivot and fervently pray? Because what we realize in the book of Acts is this. It's not that hardship brings about explosive church growth. It is that the awareness of dependence upon God enables God to work in a miraculous and extraordinary way when hardship arrives. And we are so placated and we are so passive and we are so apathetic. I just wonder, what will it take to wake us up? Will it take a little government intervention? We're close. Will it take physical persecution of believers for the cause of Jesus Christ? We're there. What will it take to wake us up and to realize that we are not impotent and powerless because we are countercultural? We must be pushed back to dependency on the Lord. By the time we get to verse 6, when Herod would have brought him forth, that is Peter, the same night Peter was sleeping. I stopped there for just a second because that phrase arrests my mind. Peter was sleeping. Not only was Peter sleeping, we'll realize here in a moment, he had gotten comfortable to sleep. He is chained to two guards. He has taken off his shoes. He has disrobed and he is sleeping. Is that not stunning to you? I don't think Peter's an ignorant man. Peter is aware that James has been executed. James has been murdered. I don't think Peter has simply resigned himself to the fact and the sense of depressed that I'm just going to sleep because I'm going to die. I think he is so certain of the sovereign rule and plan of God that he is aware that I can sleep here because if I get out, I get out. And if I'm killed, I go to be where Jesus is. I'm okay with it. I would have been a nervous wreck. I would have been nervously rambling. They would have changed guards all night long because of how much I would have been prattering on. Not Peter, he's asleep. Here's what the Bible says by the time you get to verse 7. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he, that's the angel, smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. 
And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Now, we don't have to really exposit that again. An angel comes into the prison cell. He shines like a light. He smites Peter on the side. He says to him, arise up quickly, put your clothes on, and follow me. As they're exiting, there's an iron gate past the first and second ward, and the iron gate opens automatically, and out into the street they walk. They go a block down the street, and the angel is gone, and Peter comes to himself. What I think is communicated there is Peter is now in a moment of realization. This is not a dream. I thought this was perhaps a dream. I don't know what it looked like in the prison. All I know is what Luke tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if the guards were in a catatonic state. I don't know if they were cloaked with invisibility. All I know is that I believe what happened in Acts chapter 12. Peter is freed from prison. I know that the church was praying for him and Peter makes it out. Peter now takes off and he works his way to John Mark's house. John Mark's family was obviously of some means, had a large enough house for people to gather. This is the place where they are praying. As they're having their prayer meeting, Peter knows he can go and find some people there. He works his way there to the house, and a little girl, Rhoda, she's a little damsel, a little mistress, a maiden. She comes to answer the door. We'll pick up in verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with his hands, silencing them with his hands, probably number one, let me get off this street, man. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a convict on the run here. Silences them, tells them to hold their peace, and tells them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Obviously not James, the brother of John. James, the half-brother of Jesus here. I just simply have to stop and say, do you get the picture This impoverished group of misfit nobodies actually had more power than Herod the king. And I know when Peter realizes the expectation of the Jews, the religious sect of Jews that were always fighting the cause of Christ, when they won't get what they expected, which was my death and bloodshed, I think a smile probably broke out on his face because they had to face all over again that Jesus' name is more powerful than all of their tradition and formalism and all of the control they were trying to exert. That the powerful Roman government could not stop the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are they embattled? Yes. Does James get to come back from heaven and everybody gets restored and everything's like it was? No. But the gospel message of Jesus goes forward. One wrote this. This is the great lesson of this chapter to the church. We are not to take the events of our day for granted as though there were nothing we could do about them. Prayer becomes a mighty powerful thrust on the part of the people of God to change events. That, above all else, is what this message is shouting at us. Prayer is the natural and normal response of a heart that is dependent on God. So we can deduce from this simple study this as a fact. We are not impotent, we are not useless, we are not sidelined because culture has turned against us. Because the 
The mandates of Scripture do not match the ideology of the day. It never has and it never will. What is being communicated to us is simply this. It is not until we tap into the power that we have, which is the power of God, and return to a dependency on God in fervent prayer, it is then and only then that our message will go forth and God will do extraordinary things. And man, does God do extraordinary things. I know that the Bible says that we should not seek revenge, right? I know that. But isn't it satisfying when we see the bad guys get it? Don't you like that in a movie when the bad guy finally gets it and you think, I've been waiting the whole time for someone to punch him in the face. And it finally happened and it feels really good. Well, I want you to know the Bible does not let us down in Acts chapter 12. It is exceptional because Herod is not going to necessarily get a punch in the face. It's a punch in the gut, kind of. The church is praying desperately. By the time we get down to verse 21, here's what we read. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. That's King James' way of saying, and he died a disgusting death. And it's good. I like that moment of vengeance. There's a little poetic justice as well, because the Bible tells us that an angel went into the prison cell and uses the word smote Peter on the side and woke Peter up. And the Bible tells us that an angel also arrived and smote Herod on the side, and Herod is eaten up with worms, and he gives up the ghost. It's the same word. This is merely my opinion. I think it's the same angel sent on a different mission. This communicates to us something that we don't have time to study right now, but is a reality for believers, angelic intervention. Kind of me with you right now, angelic intervention. That is our relationship. God is always working on our behalf. God is always working in ways that we cannot comprehend, nor do we understand. God is not... Without power, God is still on the throne. Hardship and adverse circumstances do not negate our cause, nor do they silence the message of Jesus Christ. It is us that silences the message of Jesus Christ due to adverse conditions. We must, in fervency, turn in prayer because God can still do anything. I think the nice little bow arrives in verse 24 where we read another word of contrast. Herod, eaten of worms and dies, but the word of God, the Bible says, grew and multiplied. That's always the case. For thousands of years, there have been Herods and families like his. For thousands of years, there has been persecution and hardship and adversity. And for thousands of years, the church is still here. Because as Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is just fact that the early church who had no political clout and the early church who had no real bank account to draw from broke through. And God worked on their behalf. And in the end, God alone gets the glory. Is the arrest of Peter 
the murder of James, the hardship of the day that woke the church up to prayer. Let me reference again what one author said. He said, we're facing the imminent appearance of the events predicted in the Bible for the last days. But if you've read human history, he wrote, you know that there have been times in the past where the world has approached the precipice of the last days. There have been times when it appeared to the whole world that these predictions were about to be fulfilled. Threatening figures have appeared on the horizon whom many have mistakenly identified in their times as the Antichrist. And yet each time, because of the grave danger's presence, God's people woke up and began to cry out to him. A spiritual awakening came. Once again, he wrote, in our day we are approaching the precipice. Perhaps we are further over the edge toward the ultimate disaster than we have ever been before. But once again, God's people are waking up, crying out to him. This is the only hope in our day. Do you realize that social reform is not where our hope rests? That expanding to another facility is is merely a byproduct of our goal. It's not the goal. That the hope that we have is that God can still work through messengers, flawed messengers like us, who are willing to count the cost and to realize that no temporal loss actually measures up to the eternal gain that is offered. John Patton was born... In Scotland in 1824, and as a young Christian, he labored in the slums of Glasgow, but he felt God's call to take the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. John Williams and James Harris, those were the two missionaries that made the first attempt to take the gospel there. They were clubbed to death and eaten by cannibals within a few minutes of their landing. Patton and his new wife landed there in 1858, and on February 12th, 1859, she gave birth to a son. But on March 3rd, she died from complications after childbirth, and on March 20th, the baby died. Of course, Patton struggled with his grief and his loneliness. Just before his wife died, she expressed her wish that her mother could be there with her. Then she added this, You must not think that I regret coming here and leaving my mother. If I had the same thing to do over again, I would do it with far more pleasure. Yes, with all my heart. Oh no, I do not regret leaving home and friends, though at the time I felt it keenly. Her dying words were this, not lost, only gone before to be forever with the Lord. Patton lived into his 70s devoting himself to the cause of the gospel among these cannibals, experiencing many divine deliverances. At the end of his life, he exclaimed this, all that I had my life to begin again, I would consecrate it anew to Jesus in seeking the conversion of the remaining cannibals on the New Hebrides. Whatever the cost, commitment to the cause. Peter slept in prison, and I I know there's something there that I wish I could unearth in my mind. And I think if you could have woke him like the angel did and said, Peter, any regrets? Peter would say, no regrets save one. I wish I had been more fervent earlier. I wish I wouldn't have denied. I wish I wouldn't have taken my eyes off him and sunk. I wish I wouldn't have corrected him when he spoke of the crucifixion. I wish I wouldn't have pulled my dagger out when I lopped off Malchus's ear. No regrets because I'm telling you this is the only life worth living. That's what Peter would have said. We are strangers and pilgrims according to the Bible. 
We are passing through. This world is not our home. I don't mean we aim at weirdness. I mean we are strange because of the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, we have no excuse. Yes, you stand out in your office. Yes, you are different than the rest of the world. Yes, conditions are adverse. No, the political climate isn't loving the truth from the word of God. But none of that deprives the gospel of power. And none of that lets us off the hook of fulfilling the Great Commission. It is our response to hardship that enables extraordinary action. Fervent prayer. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.